Yeah, it was a confusing time because Christianity was new. And there was a lot of confusion regarding what it means to become a Christian. There were Jews, there were Gentiles. There was confusion regarding if you're Jewish and now you're a follower of Jesus, what do you do about the law? What do you do about dietary restrictions? What do you do about circumcision? How do you interact with the Gentiles who also follow Jesus? And to make matters even more complicated, they were living under the authority of the Roman Empire. And so what they were surrounded by every day was paganism, promiscuity, idolatry, dark magic, and of course persecution when the surrounding culture doesn't acknowledge the one true God that is revealed in Jesus Christ. Now whether you're teaching the Bible, preaching, or just studying it for yourself, it's always important that before you try to apply the Bible, you want to make sure you understand what God is actually saying. And to add a little context, Paul is writing this letter of course, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, while in prison because of the gospel. And interestingly enough, we don't see Paul complaining about his situation. Instead, he is so captured, he's so encouraged by the greatness of Christ, that from a dank prison he is allowed, he is able to encourage others. And that's how we have the letter to the Ephesians. And as I've read over this book, of course, many times throughout the years, and then prepping for this sermon, what I'm hearing Paul say to these people over and over again, in one way or another, is I want you to understand exactly what it is you're a part of. Ephesians, people around and near Ephesus, I want you to understand that you are part of something bigger and greater than you can imagine. Christian, today, you are part of something that is bigger and greater than you can even imagine. Because around us, there are invisible forces at work. Angels, demons, supernatural powers. Of course, there's sin, sin's effects on our lives. There's culture and how it shapes and even forms our worldview. We see worship of self, accomplishment, other people, false gods, and of course, worship of the one true God. So we need this encouragement. We need this instruction today. And in just the first half of Ephesians chapter 1, you see things like you are blessed with every spiritual blessing. You're chosen. You're redeemed, forgiven, predestined. We have an inheritance. We're told that God has made known to us the mystery of his will. We're sealed when we believe the gospel. We have the indwelling Holy Spirit. And as Christ's church... We are filled by him. And that's what we're talking about today. If you did not grab a Bible earlier or open your Bible app, please do so, because we're going to go back to Ephesians chapter 1, focusing on 20 through 23, over and over again today. And so I want you to be ready. Let's look at verses 20 through 23 one more time. It says he exercised this power. Now, we just saw previously uh, in the Greek, it says powerful, powerful, powerful. God, uh, Paul is using all these synonyms for power leading up to verse 20 and telling us he exercised this power in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him in his right hand in the heavens, far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion, and every title given, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he subjected everything under his feet and appointed him as head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. And today we're talking about what it means to be the fullness of the one who fills all things. Let's pray. 
God, we ask that you would open your word to us this morning. I pray that when we leave here, we don't leave with my words. We would leave with your word. And that the message you have for us would shine forth. And that you would give us the humility to submit and surrender. To change what we think and feel and how we live. Because we believe you are the one who fills all things in every way. Speak to us now in Christ's name. Amen. In uh, the book of Colossians, chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, there's talk of this fullness of God. It says, verses 9 and 10, For the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ. So you want to know what God is like? You look at Christ. And you, Christian, have been filled by him who is the head over every ruler and authority. So let's start with this one. Number one, let's talk about the fullness of the risen Christ. Verse 20, this powerful power, Bible says he exercised this power in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavens. It is vital that we understand the importance of the resurrection of Christ. Though his message was different from and superior to other religious leaders, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, he is just one of many who have come before him and have come after him. There have been peaceful, nonviolent leaders like the Buddha who would focus on moderation, focus on seeking the middle path, as it's called, all hoping to reach nirvana where you're finally free of passions and aversions and ignorance. But Jesus' message was quite different. He said, I am the way. Don't look for some path. You found it. It's me. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. That's John 14, 6. There have been leaders in other religions with a hyper-focus on self. We see a lot of this today. It's just polished up and modernized. You're good. Look within to find the strength you need. Become the best you can be. The answers come from within, and my favorite, least favorite one is find your truth. Mm. We'll talk about that some other time. But Jesus' message in the Gospels and the Bible as a whole points to a very opposite concept. You are not good enough. Don't look in for the answers. That's where your problems come from. Look up. He is the answer. He is the way. You don't have a truth. Jesus said, I am the truth. And so we look to him for truth. Of course, there have been violent leaders that spread their message by force, war, and coercion like Muhammad. But then there's Jesus. Don't take to spread my message. Give. Jesus had said, don't return evil for evil. As a matter of fact, turn the other cheek. And instead of taking lives to further his message, Jesus gave his life instead. And so he teaches us to do the same. And you can see, if you just take a, 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 just an honest look at gurus and teachers throughout religious history, you find that Jesus' message was superior to them. However, there's more. See, Jesus could back up his teaching with authority that no other prophet, preacher, or guru could. And it goes a little something like this. Any Abraham fans in here? Father Abraham? Many sons? Yeah, he's dead. Sorry if you didn't get the message. Moses, 
did some good stuff, dead. Buddha, Confucius, Krishna, Muhammad, Joseph Smith, Martin Luther, over 260 popes, innumerable rabbis, Charles Wesley, John Calvin, Billy Graham, all the apostles, countless presidents, politicians, and pastors have one thing in common. Their authority and scope is limited because they are dead. And yet, if we visit the tomb where Jesus was laid, if we make the pilgrimage across the ocean, the great waters, and we find ourselves in Israel, and we visit the tomb where Jesus was buried, we find something striking, and that is nobody's home. Jesus is the risen Lord, and so he has more authority than any other teacher because he is the only one that conquered death. God became a man, lived a perfect life, died for our sin, and then rose on the third day, he's superior. Jesus said in John eleven twenty five, 25, responding to the death of a good friend named Lazarus, he arrived, everyone is upset, everyone's crying, and there's Lazarus' sister, Martha, and she's saying, why are you late? He's already dead. And Jesus said in John eleven twenty five, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. And my friends, nobody else can back up a claim like that. Only Jesus. So it's important for us to understand, as the fullness of Christ, his body, he is the risen Lord. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it's known as the great resurrection chapter. Paul, through the whole chapter, is making the case for, here's why it's important that Jesus rose from the dead. Here's proof that Jesus rose from, the, rose from the dead. Here's what life would be like had he not risen from the dead. In verses 17 through 19, Paul says, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Those then who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. If we put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone other. And he goes on, keeping elaborating on the resurrection of Christ. And he gets to a verse that we use this a lot, and sometimes it's out of context. But I would say, use this verse, but understand it's in the context of the resurrection, where Paul says in verse 58, the last verse of the great resurrection chapter, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, Always excelling in the Lord's work because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Why is that? Because Jesus is risen and we are his fullness. The one who fills us is above all religious teachers that came before or after him because he's the only one that rose from the dead. He's the one we love and worship. We are the fullness of the risen Christ. Secondly, verse 21, we see we are the fullness of the Supreme Christ. It says, far above every ruler and authority, power, and dominion, and every title given, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Understand that the terms ruler, authority, power, dominion here are talking about spiritual forces. In the next chapter, which we'll cover next week, Ephesians 2, verses 1 and 2, Paul's talking about this and says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously walked 
according to the ways of this world, and he's elaborating on these forces, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. Clinton Arnold, that's a good quote from him, says, these beings represent spiritual entities against which all believers will struggle until Christ returns. These are the same forces who work powerfully to hold unbelieving humanity in bondage to sin, working in conjunction with the world and the flesh. But their rebellion and hostile activity against the church and the redemptive work of God will be brought to an end at the final consummation when God subdues them under the ruling headship of Christ. My friends, Christ is supreme. Now, we should not pretend like these supernatural forces don't exist. We should not think of this as uh, just uh, mythology that people in old times believed. No, they are real. They are still at work today. The Christians at Ephesus were well aware of these powers because it was in front of them at all times. We've got to open our eyes to understand that there are spiritual battles going on in and around us. Later in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul encourages these believers to put on the whole armor of God. And all the armor is related to spiritual things, spiritual protection. And he, he tells us why in Ephesians 6.12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, familiar term, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. Demons are real, they hate us, and so we must armor up. All right, don't pretend like they don't exist, but also we don't fear these spiritual forces. Why is that? Great question. Verse 21, this risen Christ, this supreme Christ, is far above every ruler, authority, power, and dominion, and every title given, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Those are two encouraging words, far and every. Don't think of Jesus as he just barely defeated the enemy. He rose from the dead, and everyone went, whew, that was close. As you are facing these spiritual battles every day, don't think that Jesus is out there fighting and just barely scraping by. No, 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 no. He is far above Every, I, I love how that, that, that verse says, um, and every title given. That's helpful to me because whatever you're fighting with, yeah, that one too. Whatever Satan is using to attack your life right now, yeah, that one too. Every title given, every demon, every power, every authority, Jesus is far greater than all of them. And so we put our trust and we are filled by this supreme Christ. Colossians chapter 1, 15 through 20. says, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. Verse 17 of Colossians 1. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the 
beginning. Imagine just meeting Jesus on the street. Jesus, tell me a little bit about yourself. Uh, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the first and the last. I am the beginning. I am the one that spoke all of this into existence. Oh, I am Dan. That's our supreme Christ. He's the beginning. He's the one. The verse continues. He's the firstborn from the dead so that he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Christ is supreme. We are his fullness as his church. And so if he is truly supreme and we believe this, then it has to change what we do. It has to change what we believe. Literally the way we see the world is shaped by what we believe about God. This might be my favorite, favorite quote in all of extra-biblical writing. It's A.W. Tozer from his book, The Knowledge of the Holy. Listen to this. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion. And man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. He continues, For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact about any man, portentous meaning predictive, foreshadowing, even there can be some uh, kind of ominous warning in that. So the most foreshadowing, predictive fact about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. This is true not only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christians that composes the church. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. Think about the culture of Ephesus. Worship of Artemis, magic, astrology, worship of Roman emperors. Nero was the emperor over the Roman Empire at the time this letter was written, and it was Roman law. You worship Caesar. Caesar is a god, and all must worship him. And to a lot of these pagans, okay, we'll just throw in one more. One more god to worship. Add a statue. We had an empty spot on the wall. Um... There's a book called The Mysteries of Artemis of Ephesus. And the writer, Guy McLean Rogers, says, the preponderance of evidence shows that most people in the ancient world made vows to gods to achieve specific, well-defined, short-term goals, such as avoiding illness, ensuring a beautiful, a bountiful harvest, completing a voyage safely, getting rich, or attracting a desirable lover. If the goal was realized... The person who made the vow dedicated a statue or inscription to the god or gods to pay off the vow. Imagine how helpful and encouraging 
it would have been for these new Christians in Ephesus, surrounded by this darkness every day, to hear how mind-blowing it would be to hear that Jesus is far above every ruler and authority. And when he does things for you, no need to build a statue. As a matter of fact, thou shalt not, Exodus 20. Yeah, life hack. Don't. He's powerful. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need us to make some kind of image to show who he is. He's the supreme, risen Lord. How encouraging it must have been for these Ephesian Christians to read that. And this is why in the verses leading up to it, verses 18 and 19, Paul is so passionately praying for them. He said, I, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so you may know, people, that you may know what is the hope of his calling? What is the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints? What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the mighty working of his strength? You know, if we don't truly understand, if we don't truly believe in the power of Christ, then we're not going to walk in it. If our eyes are not open to how powerful Jesus is, no wonder we're fumbling along every day trying to figure things out on our own, trying to find the answers that we don't have and we cannot come to because we are not supreme. Jesus is. And so whether it is getting through life, engaging in spiritual warfare, he is our source. We are his fullness. He fills us as his people, and he is supreme. It changes what we love. It changes what we're loyal to. It changes how we live. Have you noticed that it's, Election season, yay. Oh, so sick of the commercials. At work, HGTV, HGTV is on all day, and so every commercial break is just, this person is terrible. They hate puppies. Even their mother doesn't love them. That's how bad they are. Don't believe me? Here's a picture of them in black and white. <laughs> Scary, isn't it? Don't vote for them. They'll ruin everything. Oh, oh, okay. Very next commercial. Actually, this other person, they're terrible. <laughs> no one's mother loves them. More black and white footage. And here's an unflattering still shot. And it just freezes in. Of course, it zooms in. Is this what you want to look at every day? Trust in this person, and they will solve all your problems, and everything will be wonderful, because this person is the answer. And the tone of American politics always looks more like loyalty to a college sport than deeply held beliefs. We cheer for this team. We demonize the ones we are against and we deify the ones we're for and we ignore their flaws and then we ignore the good in the ones that we are against. You know what? We need to see our earthly rulers as what they are. They are sinners in need of a savior just like us. They are not the answer. They might be the problem. They're not the answer. Jesus is the answer because no earthly authority has any kind of power compared to our supreme Jesus. Listen, Greg Abbott didn't die for you. Beto did not die for you. Jesus did, and he rose from the dead three days later. He is our supreme God. He is the fullness of God. He's the supreme ruler of the universe. And Tony Morita speaks to this. He says, what does it mean for us 
It means everything. Everything is under the reign of the seated king. The author of Hebrews says he is upholding the universe by the word of his power, and he upholds it all sitting down. If he is doing this, then we can trust him with our problems, both great and small. Our hope is not in a political election, but in the seated king. Philippians 2, starting in verse 5, tells us adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be desired, something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And he tells us more about this humble servant that gave his life. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. My friends, Jesus Christ is supreme. Write it down. Bank on it. Live by it. He is our Lord and he rules over all things. Thirdly, I'll talk about the fullness of the reigning Christ. He has the power, and he has the position to use that power. Again, verses 20 through 22 of Ephesians 1. He exercised this power in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavens, far above every ruler and authority, power, dominion, every title given, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he subjected everything under his feet and appointed him as head over everything for the church which is his body the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way he appointed them, him as head over everything for the church once we acknowledge the fact that jesus is the owner and ruler reigning over his church it should shape the way that we see the church it should shape the way we engage with the church or get involved with the church. You might have been part of a church growing up that was full of division or had a split. And you've heard the stories of this church split over carpet color. This church split over music style. Let me tell you something. No church has ever split over carpet color. Churches split because people decide they're in charge, not Christ. Church is split when someone says, this is my place, this is my joint, I'm in charge, what I say goes, my friends, no, no, no. Division is the symptom. The disease is humans acting like they are the head of the church when it's Jesus all along. I have to ask the question, why am I here today? Why are you here today? Well, it all depends. It all depends on what I think about who's in charge. Because if I'm in charge, I come for a very different motivation. If I know and realize and live in the fact that this is the church that belongs to Jesus, it will change the way I see the church 
and interact with it. I was talking with uh, one of my patients recently, and I've got a lot of time with the patients, so we're always making small talk, talking about our lives, and this was during the summer when we had the AC in the back of the sanctuary had gone out. Those of you, God bless you, VBS workers, we had some sweaty times, wild nights, the hottest part of summer, 100 people in here jumping around. It was quite warm, quite humid as well. And I was talking to one of my patients about it, how we were working on getting a new one put in, and she said, well, if I ever got to my church and the AC wasn't working, I would just turn around and go home. I'm not going to sit there and sweat. If we understand that Jesus is the ruler of the church, we have a different attitude. Pastor Ryan was talking about how, you know, the, the sun does not go down on a Sunday where churches in our network are meeting around the world. Many of them under imminent threat of violence. As in, that's their norm. Egyptian churches routinely bombed, just gathering to worship the Lord. We lived in Amman, Jordan during a time that basically Egypt was on fire, Syria was on fire, Iraq was on fire. You had the Muslim Brotherhood growing in Egypt. You had ISIS, which came under several different names during that time, in Syria, gaining a foothold in Iraq, and then also trying to gain some ground in Jordan. And there was a time where our friends that were working for the State Department were told, do not go to a Christian religious gathering right now. It's not safe. We were part of a church that, um, well, do you think we stopped meeting? No. Just as full as it ever was. I got to tell you, if you were late for church, you would know it because you could hear the singing from the parking lot. Loud. I'm talking the voices so loud at times we're thinking, it's quite loud in this building. There's something different about gathering when it's not okay. There's something different, more special, more intimate about gathering when you are under that imminent threat of possibly being blown up. There's nothing you can do to stop it. And then we move back to America. And people get really bent out of shape over air conditioning. We didn't have a great air conditioner in that church in Jordan either. It was hot. <laughs> VBS hot in there. As people sang and praised God because they understood we are part of something. Do we understand what an honor it is to be called part of the only organization on the planet that Christ identifies himself with? His church. His body. Try to stop us from worshiping. We are part of something. The church that is the body of Christ. How special, how intimate to be adopted into his family and be made part of this body the moment you put your faith in Christ. And he is filling us with his grace, with his love, and with his gifts. We're part of that. This should change the way we see other Christians. We're part of the same body. Think about that. We're here to serve. We're here to teach and be taught. We're here to faithfully obey the one another's of Scripture. We're here to arrive on mission. There's something to be done. Mutual discipleship. Why? Because we are part of the body 
of Christ. If you ever feel like God is far from you, cling to this truth. It is impossible, if you are a Christian, for Christ to be far from you because you are literally his body. There is nothing closer than being the very body of Christ. Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10 says, Be careful. Be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition, based on the elements of the world rather than Christ. For the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ, and you have been filled by him. You have been filled by him, who is the head over every ruler and authority. Christ fills us. And my friends, if we are filled by Christ, that means there's no room for anything else. Ephesians chapter 3. Paul praying for this church so much. Verses 16 through 19, he says, I pray that he may grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power in your inner being through his spirit and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you being rooted firmly established in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length, width, and height, and depth of God's love, and to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. I want to conclude with God's word to us from Colossians. We're talking about the fullness of Christ, that, that God, what did he do? He raised him from the dead. He's he seated him at his own right hand. He subjected every authority under him and appointed him as the head of the church. This Christ that loves us and fills us as his people. Colossians 1, 19-14. For this reason also, since the day we heard this, we haven't stopped praying for you. We are asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding so that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, joyfully giving thanks to the Father, who has enabled you to share in the saints' inheritance in the light. Verse 13, Colossians 1. For he has rescued us, from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the son he loves and it closes with this of that passage in him we have redemption the forgiveness of sins my friends jesus is alive he is enthroned he is supreme he is the fullness of god and he fills us his church and if you are not part of his body i want to invite you this morning to turn from your sin. Turn from your stumbling. Turn from you trying to figure things out on your own. Jesus offers you himself. He is the way. He offers truth to you. He is the truth. He offers life to you. He is life. I want to encourage you to put your trust in him and what he did for you when he shed his blood on the cross. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are. You are the fullness. That Jesus came to this earth 
to show us what God our Father is like. We thank you that we don't have to fear death because death is dead. We thank you that we don't have to fear the future because you hold the future. We thank you that we don't have to fear these spiritual powers because you are far above every single one of them and seated on your throne. They are crushed under your feet. Help us, God, to cling to that. Help us to trust you above all. May you fill us with your grace, with your love, with your gifts, that we can point others to you. We thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your never-ceasing love for us. We pray all this in the powerful name of your son Jesus. Amen.